Our scripture lesson this morning is taken from a couple books in the New Testament, 1 Timothy and 1 Peter. So I invite you now to please turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2, where I'll be reading verses 1 and 2, and then please place a uh, placeholder in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. If you are in need of a Bible, I invite you to, to grab one of those red pew Bibles in front of you. Once again, I'll start off with 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Hear now God's word. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Now, Jump over to 1 Peter, chapter 2, starting at verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. So if you weren't with us last week, a word of introduction. Um, We're talking in these couple of weeks, right around the election, about what the Bible says about politics, but not in that way. (laughs) Not in the way that tries to tell you who to vote for, or even that tries to put a finger on the scale to kind of like weight it in a certain way. Rather, we're trying to talk about what the Bible says about politics in a larger sense, about what it means for us to be Christians in that world. And I mention that because in many ways what we said last week is kind of a foundation for what we're going to say this week. So if you weren't here and have questions about that um, after this week, I'd encourage you to go back and maybe listen to last week's sermon online. But um, what we said was that the core of politics for Christians is this idea of the kingdom of God, that we are citizens of this kingdom a kingdom that is right now with Christ's throne in heaven, and that being citizens of that kingdom on some level relativizes any earthly citizenship, that our first allegiance and our true identity are always with Jesus and his people. But that said, we also mentioned last week that, that, that we are still in this world, right? That we are still, in a sense, sort of citizens of this country and this community, And being a Christian, while it means ultimately being a citizen of heaven, does not mean that we live like the Amish or like monks in a monastery or something, completely cut off from the world. That that while our true citizenship is in heaven, that we are still also called to live out our citizenship here. The Bible uses very particular language to talk about that. It's the language, for example, of Hebrews 11.13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, 
and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Or the language of 1 Peter 2.11, from just before our reading this morning. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abandon or to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So strangers, exiles, sojourners. Those are all descriptions of, well, in a sense of refugees, right? Of people on work visas, of people who are living in one place and really living there, but still feeling like their ultimate citizenship rests somewhere else. And that's the image the Bible gives us of kind of the manner of life we're to have in this world. But that image can also get taken the wrong way, all right? I remember this old mournful spiritual, I'm just a poor wayfaring stranger. And that song and the discussion that often accompanied it in my youth left me feeling like what it meant to be a stranger in exile was that I was this kind of pilgrim that was trudging down this road and having nothing to do, right, with anything to either side of it, kind of keeping my head down in this earth until I made it to glory. But the language of exile in the Bible isn't exactly about that. It actually refers to something specific. It refers to Israel's exile when she, after her rebellion and idolatry, was conquered and taken into captivity in a foreign land. And in that exile, Israel was on the one hand constantly called to recognize that Jerusalem was her true home and Yahweh was her true God, But at the same time, that exile wasn't about just putting her head down and trudging on. It was an exile in which Israel was called to live. Here's how the prophet Jeremiah summarizes how Israel was supposed to live in exile. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. And then this is the key part. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So saying that we're strangers and exiles and sojourners doesn't mean we have nothing to do with the world that we live in. We, like Israel, are supposed to seek the welfare of the city where God has placed us. To seek its welfare, but not to confuse it with our home. So what does that mean practically? And in terms of politics, I think the Bible gives us a few specific applications. A few specific kind of commandments of what it means to live out that kind of exile. In scriptures like the two that we read this morning. It says that when we think about our political lives, in particular, we're supposed to do three things. We're supposed to submit to those in authority, we're supposed to pray for them, and we're supposed to honor them. We're to submit to those in authority and pray for them and honor them. First, we're called to submit to those in authority. That, in many ways, is the most basic thing the Bible says about living in this age. We see it in our text from 1 Peter. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, he says. Be subject to every human institution. Obey its laws and its decisions. Now, in the first place, that's meant to be a warning against a certain wrong way that you you can take this language of the kingdom of God, right? There have been certain people in history that take that language as an excuse for political violence, right? 
that, that to set up a theocracy on the earth or seize the reins of power in the name of King Jesus. And the Bible warns against that when it calls us to submit to the ruling authorities, that we can't use God's um, rule as an excuse to do that. But more than that, the language of submission and being subject is meant to emphasize our primary job in relationship to this state, which is that we are to be good citizens, good in the sense that our focus is on leading godly and selfless lives, good citizens rather than masters, to be servants. Both of our texts emphasize this as our goal. 1 Timothy 2.2 says we pray so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Peter calls us to be subject and then gives this reason. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. This means that our first priority as Christians in a political world should, I guess, not be political at all. It should be to be good citizens regardless of how the political world around us is going. To heed God's call to love our neighbors and be generous to them, to be humble and gentle and live at peace. It's easy in this political climate, I think, to focus on Washington as the place where the fate of Christianity rests. We talk as if the the future of the kingdom lies with the makeup of the government. But both Paul and Peter are saying Don't get your priorities backward. Christianity starts where you are. It doesn't center on a political revolution, but on a personal revolution. We are to make our goals to live as Christians in our communities, the places where God has put us, even if Washington isn't how we would like it. That we're not to sweat that, but rather just to submit. Of course, any time we talk about submitting to the ruling authorities, people immediately want to ask about exceptions, right? Um, What about unjust laws, they ask. What about political revolutions? And that is a long and complicated discussion, okay? There are times when obeying God might mean disobeying earthly leaders when we take kind of the whole testimony of Scripture. But frankly, there aren't very many of those times. We're going to come back to this in a little bit, but it's worth bearing mind that when, we're write, when they're writing, right, and they're talking about submitting to the ruling authorities, the emperor that Paul and Peter both reference is Nero, okay? The emperor Nero, who burned down half of Rome and killed tens of thousands of people because he wanted to build a bigger palace there, and supposedly was sitting on the roof of his current palace playing a fiddle as it burned. The emperor Nero, who then blamed that fire on Christians and started the first great persecution of the church. That that's the guy that Paul and Peter are talking about submitting to. And so that should caution us, lest we fall too in love with those exceptions, right? There are times when we might have to disobey in order to be faithful to God, but most of the time, our primary call is to submit and lead peaceable and quiet lives. So we're to submit to ruling authorities. But of course, that gets a little complicated for us, right? And I think a lot of questions arise when we read Scripture, because we do live in a democracy. Um, And on the one hand... That shouldn't free us from the call to submit to those in authority, all right? The fact that we vote for people doesn't mean that this command doesn't still apply to us. That's important to say because I think some people, because we live in a democracy, feel like it simply doesn't apply. But I mean, Israel, right, chooses Saul to be their king, and then he turns out to be a terrible king, but that doesn't change the fact that Israel has to submit. That is still a calling to us. But democracy is different. 
because we do have this added responsibility to vote for people. And I know talking with some of you last week that that's something you're really struggling with. Um, And like I said last week, I will not as a pastor tell you who to vote for or even nudge you. I'm really committed to that. Um, I wrestled with whether I should say anything about this, but I will maybe note, because people are asking, historically, as Christians have reflected on democracy, they have kind of put forward, they've said, this is how much we can say from the Bible. And on the one hand, it's not a lot, but on the other hand, it's maybe worth um, saying. So in Scripture, there's basically three things that seem to matter about rulers, right? Three things that might influence how we vote. The first is their beliefs. What they believe matters, and by beliefs, we mean what they believe is good and bad, um, how they think that the world should work. Um, You could maybe call that their policies. So for example, there's places like Deuteronomy 17, where there are specific, I guess, specific policies that God says Israel's king has to support and not support. And they don't really have a lot of analogy to our current situation, right? Those specific policies. So, for example, they must not swear fealty to Egypt or amass a lot of horses. Um, And so those obviously aren't the same beliefs that we're prioritizing today. Although I guess I wouldn't be a fan of the U.S. swearing fealty to Egypt. But um, regardless, that passage shows that one of the things we do have to weigh when we vote for people is what they believe. It's policies and ideas that they support and how that fits with how we understand the world as Christians. But that's usually not simple, right? Like we said last week, it often requires us to import judgments about the surrounding world, and people are often mixed bags. We have to weigh different policies, oftentimes against each other when we think about people. But rulers' beliefs matter. At the same time, Scripture also says that we need to weigh rulers' character. Their character. So, for example, Proverbs 16.12. It's an abomination for kings to commit wicked acts, for a throne is established on righteousness. Or Proverbs twenty twenty eight, loyalty and truth preserve the king, and he upholds his throne by righteousness. Now again, when we talk about character in this setting, right, we're not talking about perfection, and we're not even necessarily talking about Christian righteousness. But there are moral lows, right, that rulers can sink to, that we also need to watch out for. And there are virtues like loyalty and truthfulness that are good in a ruler, Scripture says. And the reasoning in those Proverbs for that is important. In both cases, character matters because the king's throne is established or upheld by righteousness. Character is like a foundation that keeps things from shifting. And that's why it belongs beside beliefs, because, um, I don't know if you've noticed this, but... The thing about politicians is that they don't always mean all the things they say, right? (laughs) Um, Sometimes they lie or pander to get ahead. Um, And other times they maybe sort of mean it, but they don't have the courage or conviction to actually see it through. So if a candidate doesn't have character, that's like it's lacking a foundation for their beliefs. Um, And then the third pillar, the third thing to consider, is prudence. Whether a candidate is wise and knows what they're doing. Their proverbs are full of commands that rulers be wise. And prudence matters first because a ruler has to work with people and get stuff done, right? You might believe all the right things, but if you can't accomplish what you believe, it's not going to matter. But more than that, rulers need wisdom because when Scripture thinks about governing, it assumes that people are making really complicated and unclear decisions all the time. I know in our soundbite era that we like to pretend like every decision that a politician makes is really simple— but it just isn't, right? I have a couple of friends who actually work in politics, and sometimes I'll ask them questions about specific policies and their opinions, 
And they'll talk for hours about the nuances of all of the kind of ins and outs of the effects of those policies. And I feel a lot, a lot less sure about what I believe after I ask them, right? Um, and, and that's a good reminder to us that we want to prioritize wisdom and prudence as well. And that is as close as I will come to telling you how to vote as a Christian, which I do not mean to be close at all, all right? The, thing, the reason I kind of wrestled with whether to bring those categories is because I feel like people always hear those through lenses of commenting. That's for hundreds of years, though, the way the church has just basically said, here's what we can say biblically. And I don't think that that decides elections for us necessarily, right? But I do think that those categories are helpful, that they're kind of the starting place that I start from to say, if God says these things are important, These are the things I want to be wrestling with when I think about democracy. That's getting close to some treacherous waters. Let's move on to some things that maybe maybe aren't, don't seem as immediately tricky, but that actually in some ways I think are maybe more central. So there's a second commandment that we see in these texts, right, in addition to submit to ruling authorities. And that's that we pray for those in authority. We pray for them. So 1 Timothy 2.1 says... I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and those in authority. And I love that list of things we're supposed to offer, right? Petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. I love it because it's literally three different Greek words that usually just get translated as prayer, all right? Those are all the different words that are used for prayer. And so it's as if Timothy is saying that what we are to do is pray and pray and pray and pray thankfully for those in authority over us, which is to say that we should be praying for them. And we should be praying for them, too. That's the other thing to notice about his language. Not against them if they're on the wrong side of our political divide, that we should be praying for them that they might rule wisely and know God and experience his peace and blessing, regardless of who they are. We should apparently be giving thanks for them, right, he says, regardless of who they are. It's a common refrain in America. I've said it, right, that if you don't vote, then you have no right to complain. That We have this sense that if, you know, you have unjust rulers, but you didn't vote, right, then you didn't do anything to make them be less unjust, and so you shouldn't gripe about it. And there seems to be this kind of Christian analogy to that, which is that if you don't pray for those in office and pray for them regularly, we probably shouldn't be complaining either. This is one of several times that Scripture calls us specifically to pray for those in authority. If we don't, we actually somehow maybe share in the blame, right, for the system that they've created. So we should pray. How should we pray? Let me give a couple of concrete ideas, all right, if this is helpful. First, We should pray for their personal well-being and their families. And I'd suggest starting there as it keeps us from immediately turning prayer lists into our list of grievances. Being in a position of power is hard. There's a huge amount of stress and fear that comes with the responsibilities of office, right? I mean, I don't in my daily life worry about being assassinated. But people in office have those kinds of fears. So we should pray those in government, regardless of how we feel about them, might be sustained and protected by God. Second, pray that the Lord would give them wisdom and discernment. Like we said earlier, the kinds of decisions people in power make can be really complicated, and there's no easy answers. And whatever they do, sometimes people get hurt. So pray that God would give them the kind of insight they need to make those decisions. And then pray that they might rule in a moral and godly way. 
Well, everything we've said is true, and that our leaders don't have to be Christians and aren't going to be perfect, and Christianity isn't something you enshrine in the law, we do live in God's world. And that means there is a certain standard of justice and right and wrong. And so we should pray that those who govern um, will, will believe it and uphold it. So pray that they would do that. And pray for grace for them. Pray for grace. It's funny. I feel like we as Christians can talk about how everybody is a sinner um, and how we need forgiveness and mercy. But if somebody in politics slips up just once, misspeaks for a moment, then we are instantly out for their blood, right? And I'm not saying we shouldn't want justice when those in power do really bad stuff. It's biblical to want that. But we are so quick to condemn and destroy, I think, when it comes to politics. And that's just not the posture of the gospel. So we should pray for God's mercy to cover those in power, just like his mercy covers us. And that's really part of the point of praying for those in authority, I think. It humanizes them, right? These are human beings that we're dealing with when we think about politics, with the same failings and faults that are common to all of us. And again, that does not mean that we shouldn't seek accountability when they do evil. We should. In Christianity, authority always comes with increased responsibility. That's true of people like me in the church. That's true of those in politics. But couldn't we also forgive once in a while? Couldn't we show a little bit of mercy and kindness and maybe even encouragement? I know when I say that, that I'm, I'm totally guilty of failing to do that, all right? I, I share what is a common American dislike for everybody in politics. I remember um, several years ago, Kanan was running around the house shooting bad guys, because that was our rule if he was going to shoot people. And he asked me one day, Daddy, what's a bad guy? Um, and because I'm not always entirely serious and careful with what I tell my kids, I said, well, it's someone who does really bad things, like a murderer or a politician. <clears throat> and the next day, my mother-in-law watches him, and I get home, and she says, Eric, do you know why your son was running around the house saying he was shooting politicians? <laughs> right? So I get that, like, cynicism that we have. But I also know, when I reflect on it, that I would never want to be in elected office, really. Because the wolves are constantly circling, right? Everyone wants you to make one little mistake, and then there's blood in the water. And I couldn't handle that level of constant criticism and hatred, and few people can. So we should pray for those in authority, whether we agree or disagree with them, that the Lord would be with them. And maybe even give thanks for them, right? Like Paul says, at least giving thanks that there's somebody in the world that's willing to do that. So the Bible calls us to submit to those in authority and to pray for them. And what we just said about praying for them ties into that last idea Then I think that it gives, which is that we are to honor those in authority. To honor those in authority. And I admit, this is probably the hardest. There's a lot of places you could go in the Bible for it, but Peter makes it as clear as he possibly could in 1 Peter 2. He says, Show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. Show proper respect to everyone, honor the emperor. So we're to honor those in authority. And Peter connects that command somehow with the command to fear God, interestingly. 
One of the teachings of the Bible is that those who are in power are, in a sense, in power because God put them there. God put them there. So this is how Paul puts it in Romans 13. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Any authority that exists has been established by God. And again, I know that we like to immediately ask questions and look for exceptions, right? And there is a nuance to some of the particulars. There are places and healthy Christian discussion about things like civil disobedience or how that works in elections. But also, again, here's the thing to remember. Peter and Paul are saying those things about the emperor Nero. Nero, who was so crazy that it actually fractured the Roman Empire, Nero, who would impale Christians on poles and light them on fire to light his garden. Nero, who murdered Peter and Paul. They're saying that we're to treat Nero's authority as from God and to give him honor. And that should be really convicting to us. It's really convicting to me. I often in private with those few people who I allow myself to discuss politics with, express my frustration and disgust with politicians in ways that, let's just say they're less than respectful, right? But Peter says that we are to honor them, period. Whether we agree or disagree, we're to give them dignity, show humility towards them, and respect their office. What does that look like in practice? Let me give a couple of concrete thoughts that I've tried to apply to my life in the last couple of years as I've been convicted about this. Maybe the first and the simplest and most specific one in America is that we should use politicians' proper names and titles, right? So we should call our current president, President Obama, and our last president, President Bush. That we shouldn't just call them by their last name like there's some dude that we go get beers with down at the bar on Friday night. And we definitely shouldn't use the other names for them that you find on the internet and the radio. Titles are actually called honorifics, right, historically, because the idea is that that title is meant to signify the honor that the office bears, and so we should use it, regardless of what we think of the person in that office. Second, it means that we shouldn't mock or belittle people in power. We should not mock or belittle them, right? I see things every day where people call our current president an idiot or a buffoon that demean and insult him and his family. And that is wrong. Unless you pat yourself on the back about that, right? I also remember when, our le- when the last president was in power and many of us who don't say those things right now called him an idiot and a buffoon and said things that demeaned and insulted him. And there have been times that I have said things, although I'm not going to tell you about which president because of those commitments, Right? That, um, that were demeaning and insulting. Now, you can honor people and still disagree with them, right? We're not saying that it's wrong to disagree. That's fine. But you can't honor people while you insult them. Doing that violates Scripture's command. So then third, honoring those in authority means that we need to be careful when we criticize them. That we can criticize them, all right? Again, that, um, that we are absolutely free to disagree with what they're doing and say that their policies and choices are wrong. 
but we always need to make sure that our criticisms are true and fair. If I could speak to one particular area that that crops up a lot, the internet, right? Without going too far into the weeds, the internet is full of stories that are slanted or misleading or just downright lies. It's full of them. And many of us have shared them. Share them because we agree um, with the kind of like assumptions that they make. But here's the thing. If the story that we share is false, then that's a sin. Sharing a false story that defames someone's reputation, that is what the Bible defines as slander. Slander. And it doesn't matter whether we know that it's false or not. If we share a story which perpetrates a lie and harms someone's name, it's slander. And slander is a sin. It's actually a pretty significant sin. In Matthew 15, for example, Jesus names the sorts of sins that that show that someone has an evil heart. And he says they include murder, adultery, sexual immorality, slander, and then some other stuff too. So slander is a big deal. Now again, that doesn't mean that we can't share accurate criticisms of people in power and dialogue about them. But Jesus is saying that if we share a story about a politician that is a lie and defames their character, that that's evil. Because people's names and reputations matter. And we're to honor people and respect them, even if we think they're wrong about everything. And look, I say that knowing that that can be a hard thing for many of us to hear. Because many of us have done it. I mean, I've done it in the past, right? I've seen lots of very public Christians do it. One of the sad realities of the world where we live, and maybe of every world, is that the church tends to have certain sins that it feels are more respectable than others. And that can cause us to do things that are sinful because the church doesn't adequately communicate to us that they are sin. And slander, much like greed and pride and envy, I think is often excused or even congratulated in our world. But it is strongly condemned by God. So one last practical point in honoring those in power. I think that that should be a call for us to look for areas where we agree with people. We should look for areas where we agree with those in office and with those around us. We live in an age where both political parties are really driving us towards being polarized, right? Towards the view that there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that we can agree with or trust or share with people that don't share all of our convictions. And that warps the way we view the world. It keeps us from giving proper honor and respect to people. I saw an interesting experiment, I think about a year ago I saw this, that a couple of universities did. Um, They took took two different health care plans, all right? Not any actual existing ones, but two kind of like ideas about health care. And and they did their best to make them both bipartisan and kind of moderate. Um, And then they sat people down and they they labeled one of them, you know, one of them the Republican plan and one of them the Democrat plan. And they switched the label, right? It's 50-50. So so literally like what was in the plans didn't matter, right? Um, But they had the people look at them and then say whether they agreed or disagreed. And what they found, regardless of the plan and regardless of party, was that if the plan was labeled with your political party, you agreed with it 80% of the time. And if it was labeled with the other party, you agreed with it 20% of the time right? 80 to 20, just because of that label. And I am prone to that bias. We all are, I think. We all have certain things that, that shape how we view people. 
And look, maybe that's not all bad even, right? Many of us are going to have convictions that naturally fit with one political party or the other, and that's fine. But what that experiment reminded me of then and made me think a lot about is how I really need to start listening to people that I disagree with rather than just assuming that they're wrong. Because I need to do that because we live in a democracy, right? And if democracy is going to work, we need to do that. But even more, I need to do that because I'm a Christian, Christianity calls me to respect and live with people who I disagree with. As we close, if I could just reflect a little more on that last idea personally. This has been one of the things that I found myself thinking a lot about last week and this week as I tried to think through what we could say biblically about politics. So I remember this discussion that I had years ago, this night, one summer. Um, I was visiting this, this good friend of mine who lived in Seattle and who's now a minister And he invited me to this conversation group that he was a part of um, with some friends of his. They'd have it like every month. And and so we're sitting on top of this apartment building in downtown Seattle, right, overlooking Elliott Bay. And it's this beautiful evening. And there's wine and homemade bread and cheese. And these people sit down and they start talking about politics. And these people were all over the map, right? Like two of them were these like Reagan Republicans and three of them were these kind of staunch Democrats. And there was both a libertarian and a socialist that was there too, right? And they, they started discussing politics. But they, they didn't argue, right? They'd ask questions like, well, what do you think about this? And then like, well, what about that? You know, what about this problem for what you said? And then they'd listen to what the other people said. And that went on for five hours until we had to go inside because it was too cold to stay on the roof. And it was beautiful, right? Beautiful because I feel like that's what I always believed democracy should look like. But beautiful more than that. Because I could honestly say that we had talked about politics in the context of love. In the context of love. And I think in many ways that's where both last week and this week's text led me as I reflected on them. Toward love. Right? Like we said last week, if the kingdom is ultimately not of this world, and that sets us free from the loyalties and labels and fears that this world gives us, then that actually frees us to love people, even if we think they're wrong. <laughs> and if our primary calling as Christian is to submit and pray for and honor those in authority, then that drives us towards love too. Loving our neighbor as ourselves, regardless of the politics those neighbors happen to have. And look, I know that I say that and it sounds kind of hopeless. I feel that way sometimes. That our nation is really divided and it's hard to imagine people disagreeing while loving each other. But what I do know is that if anyone is equipped to seek peace and love and foster respectful disagreement rather than yelling and name-calling, if anybody in the world is going to be able to do that, it's the people of the cross It's the people of Christ who came to love his enemies and to die for them as they killed him. The prophet Jeremiah calls us to seek the good of this earthly city. And perhaps the core of that good is what Jesus calls the second greatest commandment, to show God's love to all of our neighbors. So let's submit and vote as is appropriate Let's do so always being prayerful and showing respect. Let's have that all be knit up together in love.
As we turn to a time of prayer, I want to do something a little bit different, if it's all right with you. Um, given that one of the things that Paul says in First Timothy is that we're supposed to pray and pray and pray for those in authority, rather than our normal time of sharing concerns and prayers for the church, I wanted us to spend some time praying for, um, for all those in authority in our nation and our world. So um, we'll have a time of prayer and then a time of silent prayer where each of you can lift up your hearts and then we'll end with the Lord's Prayer as we usually do. So would you pray with me? Lord of the nations, we come to you in a season where we are very mindful of the uncertainties of the powers of this age and we pray that you would fix our hope on your throne and in your reign. Remind us of our heavenly citizenship and our secure inheritance. Guard us from fear and teach us to hope. Lord, we do pray for this world where you've placed us. We think of our brothers and sisters in every nation first. Pray that you would watch over them and us. Help us all as your followers to seek the good of our cities and our countries, to pray for and honor those you place in authority. We pray especially for Christians in those places that seek to oppose your name and ask that you would protect them and bring justice for their cause. Father, as we ourselves look towards an election this Tuesday, we pray for all those you have placed in authority over us and all those who will be in authority. We ask that you would be with them personally, uphold them through difficulties, and show mercy in their struggles. We ask that you would guide them and give them your wisdom. We pray that you will teach them your ways, turning them from those things they believe that are contrary to your will, and giving them courage for those things in keeping with your will. We pray this for President Obama and whoever our next president will be, for all those in the Senate and House and those who sit in the courts. We pray this for Governor Rahner and all those in state and local governments as well. We pray all of these things for them and pray that you would hear us now as each of us lifts up our nation and this world to you. Lord, we pray to you, our King, and trust in you to work what is needful by your strong right hand. We pray your grace and mercy for us, that you might give us rulers who deal with us justly rather than the rulers we deserve. Guide us by your goodness in our exile, and be near to us as we anticipate that heavenly home that is where our true inheritance lies. Father, hear these prayers in the name of King Jesus, and hear us as we pray as he taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, We now have the opportunity 
to come to the Lord's table um, as we